0: If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We're in the ninth week of a year-long series traveling through the Gospel according to Mark. And we come to our passage for today, which is Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. Please give attention once again to the reading of God's Word. One Sabbath, he that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. May God add his blessing once again, both to the reading and hearing of his word. And as we now spend time in God's word, let's go to him in prayer, asking for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are a people in desperate need today. We are in need of revelation from the outside, and we are in need of transformation on the inside. And so, Father, we give you thanks that you have not left us alone. You have given us your word and your spirit father may they be active in our hearts and lives now as your gathered people come to you to listen to you speak for we pray in jesus name amen so we're on week nine of jesus according to the bible an exposition of the gospel of mark now you'll notice there's going to be some questions uh, in our text today. But I want to start off by asking you all a question. It's an obvious question, but it's one that needs to be asked and answered nonetheless. Would you rather base your life on truth or on deception? Would you rather base your life in reality or in illusion? In commenting on the gospel according to Mark, Eugene Peterson, who translated and comes up with a paraphrase for the New Testament called The Message, said this about Mark. For common as belief in God is, there is also an enormous amount of guesswork and gossip surrounding the subject, which results in runaway superstition, anxiety, and exploitation. So Mark, understandably, is in a hurry to tell us what happened in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The event that reveals the truth of God to us. So that we can live in reality. And not illusion. There's many misconceptions and misunderstandings about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how People should respond to the person and work of Jesus. And our goal in going through Mark slowly, carefully, deliberately, week after week after week, is to get, grow in our understanding exactly of who Jesus is according to the scriptures and what did Jesus come to do according to the scriptures. And also, that third question, which oftentimes is but cannot be neglected. How should we respond? How should we respond to Jesus? Last week's text and this week's test present us with questions that have to be answered. Last week it was fasting or feasting. And we learned through that text, through that passage, that being in the presence of Jesus is one of great joy and not sorrow. This week, as we walk through our text, we will see the question is this, legalism or lordship? Death or life? These two incidents that we just read could be easily two sermons, and in many cases are two or more sermons, but because both of them are united by this theme of the relationship of Jesus to the Sabbath, we're going to consider them together. Mark, if you haven't picked up so far, is a good storyteller. Doesn't mean he's making up anything, but he's telling a good, he's telling a true story in a very um, captivating way that draws us in to pay attention. Um, Mark is telling us not only what happened, but also what it means. Mark, in other words, is, is doing Bible study of observing the text of interpreting the text, and then, as we will see, applying the text. And as he goes, as we will see him march through his gospel, he's illustrating the great themes of Jesus' ministry. And when we unpack our text this morning, I think we'll see Jesus doing three things. Making a declaration, asking a question, and issuing a warning. Let's take a first look at Jesus makes a declaration. And you see this in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 2. Jesus is making a declaration of who it is who's actually in charge. Picture the scene. Jesus is walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples and as he did it wasn't probably a walk in silence he is instructing his disciples those who he's called to follow him we see that and we also see what the pharisees were doing the teachers of the law the scribes the the men in Israel who were who were committed to the law of god committed to keeping israel uh, pure in their worship and obedience to god or so they thought The Pharisees are asking a question, but are they asking a question or are they really making an accusation as we've seen earlier? Jesus answers their question and their question is this. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answers that question with a counter question as he often does. And he goes to the scriptures. Have you never read? He's going to bring out a clear implication of an Old Testament passage, one that's maybe not up front, but buried deep into the history of God's people. And do you see the irony right there? The teachers of the law are being asked, have you never read by Jesus? The Sabbath, the Sabbath, a a word that may be familiar to some, not so familiar to others. It's not only commandment number four of the Ten Commandments, but it's also a creation ordinance. In other words, the Sabbath applies to all people, not just, as it were, God's covenant people. When God finished creating, as we read in the early chapters of Genesis, He rested from His work. Even though God rested, He continued to rule. And as God took a Sabbath His people, and in fact, all people are blessed under his rule. Now, it's hard for us here in uh, November of 2015, even in a church like Grace and Peace that hopefully emphasizes the importance of the Lord's day, the importance of God's people worshiping and resting, of gathering together with one another. It's hard for us to understand how important the Sabbath was to the Jews of the first century. Together with circumcision, it was the defining feature of their self-identity and their spiritual culture. It was what most distinguished them from all other people. It was a, one of the Ten Commandments that separated and distinguished God's people from all other people. And yet, this one commandment ended up having 39 additional rules built around it to protect the commandment, to form a hedge around the commandment. One of those rules had to do with the amount of grain you could harvest on the Sabbath because they were interested in what constituted work and what did not constitute work. Well, Jesus here makes a declaration first about the Sabbath. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He reminds them of the purpose of the Sabbath, to be a blessing and not a burden. And yet the way that Israel had become, had come to observe the Sabbath in this day, it made not working into a religious work. And Jesus, by going back to this passage of Scripture where David and his men ate the bread of the presence, which was unlawful to eat. What Jesus is helping his hearers then and now to see is that scripture fails to condemn David's act. King David, reminding them again that the Sabbath is a blessing, a gift, and not a burden, because there is indeed a true need. We even read that word. They... um, Haven't you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? The Sabbath, a gift, a blessing, and not a burden. But that's not the only declaration Jesus makes. He's not just declaring something about the Sabbath. He's declaring something about himself. Himself. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He has already said he's got the authority to teach, to call, to heal. And remember when he said he had the authority to forgive sin. Do you remember the response? Who alone but God can forgive sin? This is blasphemy. When Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, it is a staggering It is a staggering statement, a breathtaking claim. Because what he is saying, by saying that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he's saying that one greater than David is here. King David, the greatest king Israel had had, he is saying, in other words, he is David's greater son that the psalm speaks of. Jesus is saying here. That instead of saying, you must let Scripture determine your life and thinking, he is saying, Let what I say determine your life and thinking. And to be sure, Jesus' life and Jesus, what Jesus says is what Scripture says. But Mark doesn't let us know at this time how people responded to this declaration of Jesus. And so what follows in Mark's account of the life and ministry is a demonstration of the truth of Jesus' declaration. Remember, Mark's concern is, is less chronological, and it's more arranged, and it's an arranged account to present Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, to present Him as the King bringing a kingdom. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus asked a question. Jesus asked a question about the purpose of the law. What's the scene now, not in the grain field, but in the synagogue, the the center of uh, of Jewish religious life at this time? The Pharisees, as you'll see, again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, and that would go back to being the Pharisees, watched Jesus. To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The Pharisees are attempting to set a trap. They're watching in order to accuse. Their mind is already settled, they're just looking for evidence to support their case. What prompted this question from Jesus? What prompted this question? From Jesus. It's the co location, once again, of himself and the Pharisees and a man in need. Because we read of a man was there with a withered hand. A withered hand, a shriveled hand, some of your transformations may say. It's just his hand, right? But it's also an illustration and a picture that Mark wants to see of how all of life. Is withered. All of life is shriveled up until it's restored by Jesus. So let's ask ourselves what is being asked by Jesus in his question? What is being asked? And that question again is in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What is Jesus asking. Jesus is not so much asking as he is making a declaration about the purpose of the Sabbath. And just as their question is not a question but rather a trap, so also Jesus' counter question is not a question as it is a judgment. Jesus is once again bringing to everyone's attention that the Sabbath is to be a blessing and not a burden, a delight and not some Um, in your own strength and power duty. So Jesus asked a question. Well, how is this question answered by the Pharisees? Look at the text with me again. Jesus asked the question, and at the end of verse four, we read this. But they were silent. But they were silent. In the name of of piety and in the name of a concern for legal detail they had become oblivious to the purposes of God and the sufferings of men. Remember how does Jesus summarize the law we will read later? To love God and to love your neighbor. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Not only Are they oblivious to the purposes of God? But here is a man in obvious need and in obvious suffering. And they don't care. They're not concerned. It's met with silence. But that's not all it's met with. Because verse 6 says again, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's met not only with silence, but with conspiracy. A plot to destroy Jesus. Here we see an unholy alliance between the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the political leaders, the Herodians. They now have common cause to ruin, to eliminate, to destroy a common enemy. Because they rightly recognized that Jesus is not just a man with another opinion. No, the people recognized he taught with authority. And his miracles and his ability to command the scriptures, they understood that he had authority. And he offered another way and he was a threat. We've been asking ourselves, what did Jesus come to do? Ask yourself this question, what did the religious leaders come to do when they gathered on the Sabbath in the synagogue? With verse 6, the shadow of the cross is already beginning to fall on the pathway of Jesus. Here we see clearly opposition to Jesus. There's two things I want all of us to note about opposition to Jesus and thus opposition to his followers. Expect it and prepare for it. Expect it and prepare for it. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was a threat then and he's a threat now. Jesus disrupts people's lives. An English preacher by the name of Dick Lucas I was listening to a while ago said this, that any old fish, any dead fish that is, can float with the tide. However, once a fish becomes alive, it finds itself swimming against the current. Jesus is opposed and his people will be opposed. Expect it and prepare for it. Well, we've seen Jesus make a declaration. We've seen him ask a question. Now, we will see him issue a warning. A a warning? Yes, a warning. Well, where do we see that? Let's take a look. Jesus, we read in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Mark is a, is a guy that likes to fly through things, doesn't he? Immediately this, immediately that. And here he points out that Jesus is angered and grieved. And Mark wasn't there, of course, probably getting this through Peter. Peter's up close with Jesus, and Jesus is angered, And deeply grieved. He's in distress. Why? What would bring about anger from Jesus? What would bring grief to Jesus? It's right before us, of course. At their hardness of heart. The danger of a hardened heart. Let's pause for a moment and and. And and let's think about this observation, this awareness of Jesus. Because what Jesus is helping us see that there are two ways to rebel against God by being very, very bad, going your own way, being very uh, irreligious, as it were. Think the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And the other is being very, very good, being very, very religious. One is overt and external disobedience and the other is covert and internal disobedience, trying to be a better God. These are two sides of the same coin. In the parable of the prodigal son, both the younger brother and the older brother both wanted to be God. They both wanted to be in control, one by breaking all the rules and one by keeping all the rules they were disguised in different ways but they had the same problem uh, at the heart and that is indeed the heart's problem wanting to be god wanting to be in control hardness of heart the, ref- the willful refusal of people to accept the truth even when it's in their face and we heard that from psalm 95 that Joel read a few minutes ago even though they had seen the works of god Even though they had seen it, they hardened their hearts. Because a hardened heart refuses to submit, it refuses to relinquish control. It's not like struggling, because we all struggle. It's an outright refusal. Jesus, as we will see beginning here and throughout this gospel, has a fierce impatience with the Pharisees. Why? The hard heart the curse of the hard heart, and yet he has a tender forbearance toward the worst of sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes, zealots, adulterous women. Jesus has a fierce impatience on the one hand, and he has a tender forbearance on the other. Well, if that's the danger of a, of a hardened heart, let's ask ourselves ourselves, Right now, what are the warning signs of a hardened heart? Uh, many of you know Michelle's dad had open heart surgery uh, in May uh, to uh, to open up some arteries around his heart. And the problem with Michelle's dad is he didn't have any symptoms. He didn't have any symptoms. It was only when he got some routine tests that they discovered the problem. But most of the time, there are some symptoms of heart disease. Symptoms of Something going on inside of you. Well, let's consider just for a moment three warning signs of the hardened heart that, we are, that arise from our text. First, how about this? A greater concern to be right according to your own laws rather than being godly, loving according to God's laws. When I served with the Navigators uh, U.S. military ministry, there was a missionary to France that would come by and visit with our team occasionally, and and he always said, it's better to be godly than right. I didn't quite understand that. I don't still completely understand it, but I understand it more now. It's better to be godly than right. And warning sign number one, a greater concern to be right than godly. Ask yourself, is that a warning sign in your life? How about warning sign number two? A greater effort being made to find fault in others than in yourselves. What are the Pharisees doing? They're looking. They are on the prowl. They are trying to catch Jesus violating the law. Earlier in our service, do you know what we did together We had a corporate confession of sin. And then we had a time where we could confess our individual sins. We do that week after week after week to remind us of who we are still. Do you notice that in our worship service we do not have a confession of other people's sins? Aren't you glad? But how's the atmosphere at your house? At your work, are you really absolutely gifted at finding other people's sins and absolutely pathetic at looking in the mirror of God's word? Warning sign number two: a greater effort is being made, and we see that in our text. It's being made to find fault in others rather than yourselves. And then third. A third warning sign when confronted by Jesus, there's a refusal to submit, a refusal to confess, to bow down. Jesus is confronting unbelief, and there's a refusal to submit. In repentance and faith. And how does Jesus confront us today, brothers and sisters? As we read the Word. Have you all ever just been reading God's Word and you're you're stopped? You can't get off a verse. The Holy Spirit is bringing conviction, the Holy Spirit is bringing comfort, the Holy Spirit is bringing calling. Warning sign number three when confronted by Jesus, there's a refusal to submit. Well, in presenting us with these scenes of a work of necessity, eating because you're hungry, and a work of mercy, healing because of a a, a crippled hand, Mark is showing us what Jesus can says can and should be done on the Sabbath. You see, brothers and sisters, these two scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus, as we have seen Jesus speak to what can and should be done on the Sabbath, that is works of necessity and mercy. These two scenes point to that, but they also point to this. An even greater work of necessity and mercy. Not just greater works, but they're pointing to the one great work of necessity and mercy. You see, Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Obey perfectly. And suffer the penalty for our failure to obey perfectly. That, my friends, is a work of necessity that Jesus did on our place. And in doing it on our place and making it available to us through repentance and faith, that, my friends, is a great work of mercy. Do you see it? Works of necessity. Works of mercy, pointing to the work of necessity and mercy. Brothers and sisters, Jesus in our passage has recovered the Sabbath as a day of worship and rest. It's not a day of our own accomplishment, it's a day of remembering Jesus' work and his accomplishment. In the beginning, God said, My work is finished. And so he could rest. And on the cross, Jesus said, my work is finished so that you and I could rest. That's good news. Let's pray. Almighty God, our heavenly father, we thank you for giving us a growing understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Father, along with that growing understanding, would you give us a growing desire to to follow Jesus, to obey Him, to submit to Him, to bow down before Him. Father, we, we acknowledge that Jesus is a man to whom it is said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Oh, Father, enable us from the heart with thanksgiving and joy to submit our lives to the only one who can rule our lives in goodness and truth. For we pray in his name. Amen.